Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major podcast directories, Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, all those places. And I also have a blog that I haven't done much with since the Austin Oral Argument when I switched over to the podcast format, but there's some good stuff there. You can check it out. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is Friday, November 19th, 2021. And we're going to continue talking about this draft constitution that looks like it's on its way to ratification. And we did a tour of the constitution. It was really more descriptive than analytical. And I want to talk about some consequences, I think, that that flow from this new restructuring and some of the big picture issues like antitrust issues. What's the current state and future of amateurism? What's the role of Congress going to be? Before I get into those issues, I want to talk about something that's really important here that has been simmering beneath the surface of discussions regarding the regulation of college sports for years and That is, why do the Power Five stay under the NCAA umbrella? And I think there are five important reasons for that. I talked about that at some length in my episodes on the prisoner's dilemma. And as I discussed in both the pay-for-play episodes, but also these episodes on the prisoner's dilemma, and those were episodes 13, 14, and 15, and I, I discuss the history of this detente that has developed between the football interests and the national office and the role of the March Madness Money Post Board of Regents. And what evolved through the history of these power exchanges between the NCAA and the powerful football interests was a very carefully calibrated status quo where the NCAA was acting as the enforcer of this overarching compensation limit on the cost of labor, which was fixed at the value of an athletic scholarship. And that's been the case since 1956. You had the Power Five asserting its authority and its might under the NCAA umbrella to achieve control of the governance process and to achieve as much independence and separation from the rest of the NCAA as it could get in order to protect its financial independence, the very independence it obtained from the NCAA and the Board of Regents decision. And in that status quo, you had both the NCAA and the Power Five football interests pretty happy because the NCAA got its consolation prize, this March Madness money that I don't think the Power Five interests really care that much about. And that's increasingly the case as the value of the football product is going up. And this college football playoff is a great example of that. And if there's an expansion there, then you're going to see the March Madness money become even less important 
into the big time powerful football interest. So they don't really care that much about men's basketball. They don't care that much about the March Madness money. But the NCAA cares a lot about that because that's its sole source of revenue. And it justifies the NCAA national office's very existence and the continuation of the bureaucratic state. And the other thing that's important to remember in that regard, the, the preservation of the NCAA bureaucratic state, and under this new constitution, the NCAA really only has a couple of primary roles. One, to conduct national championships. Two, to exploit the value in the March Madness contract and then spread that money to downstream beneficiaries. But this March Madness contract goes into 2032. And I've talked before about the implications of the long-term contracts, particularly this March Madness contract, because that essentially is a monopoly over postseason basketball money and the postseason basketball market. And I think that's something that was teased out a little bit in the Kaplan Gender Equity Report and how being locked in that long with the CBS Turner contract really put women's basketball at a disadvantage because that contract, which is so focused on men's basketball really made it difficult to give women's basketball the opportunity to explore other market opportunities. And the other thing about that long-term contract that's relevant to what I want to talk about here and why I think the Power Five stay under the NCAA umbrella is that when you look at these responsibilities that are left, or I call them responsibilities, these authorities that the NCAA has under this new constitution, they don't really have to do much at the administrative level with respect to those authorities to, you know, sign contracts and enter into broadcast media agreements and to sell intellectual property because those responsibilities have been under the president's purview for decades. And But they were buried in the back of the NCAA Division I manual in the administrative regulations. They have simply been brought forward and now they have the status of constitutional law. But what, as a practical matter, do those duties really entail right now, given the fact that you have a contract that's going to be in place at least until 20? 32. And again, I think that speaks to how shallow the NCAA's responsibilities are under this new constitution. It goes back to that Claire McCaskill quote that I put in front of one of the earlier episodes. This was back from a hearing in 2014, and she was a former senator from the state of Missouri. And when she was grilling Emmert at that hearing, she just said, look, if you're just an economic pastor, if you're just a money person, why should you even exist? And that is an important question right now. Why does the NCAA even exist? And that ties directly in, I think, to what it is that the Power Five get from the NCAA, being under the NCAA umbrella. And I said, there are five things. So let's talk about those things. And some of the stuff's going to bump up against these bigger picture issues like the future of amateurism, what the state of amateurism is and what it may look like going forward under this reallocation of power, then the antitrust implications of the new structure of college sports, and then what's going to happen in Congress. But I want to try to just focus on why now, when the NCAA is in its weakest position ever. Why does the Power Five attach itself to the NCAA when it could very easily go out and start its own association? And it has threatened to do that time and time again. Under the old NCAA, the, the pre-Austin, the pre-NIL, the pre-failed Senate campaign NCAA, the big-time powerful football interests have bullied their way into control of NCAA governance and protection of their financial interests under the NCAA umbrella. It started in 1970. 
1973 with the creation of the three divisions. Then in 1978, when big time football further separated its interests out into division 1A, which is essentially what the FBS division is now, this high level football division that has the power five and the group of five. And then in the mid 1990s, when they wanted control of governance, essentially, and they were threatening to leave then. And then again, in the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014, they were saying, if you don't give us what we want, we'll leave. In each of those situations, the NCAA caved. They gave the Power Five everything that they wanted because the NCAA's greatest fear now, particularly post-Board of Regents, when it's solely reliant on March Madness money, is that if the Power Five left the NCAA entirely and formed its own association. It would very likely take its basketball product with it. And if that happens, the March Madness tournament is dead. I, I don't know if it has any market value. And, you know, Americans want to see the best. They want to see the best play against the best. That's really what's driven the entire marketplace in big time college sports. And that's the way that it has moved regardless of who has ostensible control at the regulatory level. So if you take, you know, Duke and UNC and UCLA and Michigan and Kansas, pick your big time school, you take all those products completely out of the March Madness tournament and March Madness is not that compelling. And I just don't think it's going to have market value. The NCAA knows that. And the Power 5 football interest know that. And that's why I think that this March Madness tournament, again, which is increasingly less important to the big time powerful football interests who are driving the train here, they are okay just uh, using that as a bargaining chip and letting the NCAA keep that money and that contract and keeping high level division one men's basketball handcuffed to the NCAA bureaucratic state. But now in the post-Austin era, the post-nil debacle era, the post-failure in the Senate to get these extraordinary protections and immunities, which would have preserved the old status quo. And again, if the NCAA and the Power Five had been successful in getting antitrust immunity, the preemption of state laws and a provision that athletes can't be employees, we're not having this discussion. This constitution committee doesn't exist and it's business as usual under the old carefully calibrated status quo where everybody was pretty happy. So the changed circumstances, I think, beg that question even more about why the Power Five is still operating under the NCAA umbrella, because under this new constitution, they're going to have to create some Power Five Division One infrastructure, at least for infractions and enforcement, but perhaps for other things as well. So you would think that the incentive for the Power Five to stay under the NCAA umbrella would be as weak as it's ever been in the fall of 2021 and heading into 2022, but that's not the case. So let's look at these five things that the Power Five get from the NCAA that get virtually no attention. And I mentioned these in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes. And I guess I should point out that those episodes were done after the oral argument in Austin, but before the Supreme Court issued its opinion. I think I did those, I want to say in April or maybe early May, but a lot's changed since then. So let's take a look at some of the things that the Power Five get from the NCAA and being under the NCAA umbrella. Number one, the Power Five can claim with a straight face 
that they are operating as legitimate nonprofit entities, at least with respect to big time football and big time men's basketball, which are the only two products that matter in the business models. And another way to look at this is that the Power Five under the NCAA umbrella gets to hide in this amateurism forest of 1,200 institutions across three divisions. And the differences between Ohio State and Mary Baldwin College that I talked about in the tech couple of episodes ago, those are conflated under this big tent theory. And so the Power Five have been very successful at sort of hiding in that forest and drawing attention away from the fact that even within this three division, 1200 school association, they are the business of big time college sports. They call the shots. They have owned the NCAA post board of regents. But that reality, that business reality is obscured, I think, in a pretty effective way by the Power Five's inclusion in this big tent NCAA. And the NCAA carrying the bags for the Power Five has been so effective at the propaganda level in portraying the interests of the Power Five as no different at the values level than the interests of downstream Division Three schools with whom the Power Five have absolutely nothing in common. But when you listen to the rhetoric that has come from Bob Gates and from the proponents of this Constitution Committee, they've been walking this interesting line here because on the one hand, they're trying to make the case for sending stuff down to the divisions because this Big Ten approach really is silly on its face because the Division Three products have no business being under the same association and governance structure as the Power Five, but at the same time, trying to keep this big tent together. And they've done that by purchasing Division Two and Division Three and their votes for this ratification process of the new constitution. So they're having it both ways, but the overarching message here is that this big tent is the way we're going to go. And the Power Five get to uh, benefit from that by nestling into that forest alongside all these more amateur-like products that, again, obscure the business purpose and professional purpose of football and big time men's basketball. And it's also important to remember that over the years, the football and basketball products have been really targeted in claims that the NCAA itself isn't acting as a legitimate nonprofit. And a good example of that, that I talked about in my pay for play episodes was this letter that the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee sent to the NCAA and to Miles Brandon, I think it was 2005, maybe 2006, calling into question the NCAA's nonprofit status because of the revenue that it brought in and how that revenue was spent with uh, big-time football and big-time men's basketball. And that that collided with Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model where Brand said, look, we act like a for-profit enterprise, essentially. We, we operate like a professional sports league on the input side and generating revenue. But on the output side and how that money is spent, we are sending it down to the beneficiaries of participation opportunities. And that's consistent with our nonprofit mission and everything is okay. 
And when Brand and others who support this application of the collegiate model talk about participation opportunities, they're talking about non-revenue sports and they're talking about women's sports. And that has been the, the camouflage that the Power Five football and men's basketball products have operated in. And that thinking, that collegiate model thinking that Miles Brand really pressed in his 2006 State of the Association speech is alive and well in the thinking today. And it came out in Linda Livingstone's testimony at that September 30th hearing. That was really the centerpiece of her mission there to, to make a case for taking the money from football and men's basketball and sending it downstream. And that is implicit in the structure of this new constitution. And it's really in full gear here at a different level. It's not intra-institution. This is system-wide where you take this March Madness money. Again, the football money is off the table. <laughs> you take this March Madness money and then you spread it around because the people who earn that money don't really have a claim to it. That's the way that the NCAA and the downstream beneficiaries and the academic interests think about that money. It's their money and they can do whatever they want to with it. And they choose to send it down to overwhelmingly white beneficiaries of participation opportunities. And it's just a, a really a stomach turning concept that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have gotten away with. And I've talked quite a bit about that, but that's really a shaky scaffolding, as I have discussed in many ways in this podcast and in my discussions about the collegiate model. But Bill Thomas was the chair of that committee. He's a Republican, I think, from California. And he asked some really good questions about how that money was spent. And the NCAA really struggled to, to offer an intelligent, coherent answer. But the nonprofit issue kind of went away. And uh, the NCAA skirted that, that issue, as it has done on other occasions as well. But the context for that criticism from the Ways and Means Committee was in this NCAA big tent setting. And if you change the facts and you pull the Power Five out of the NCAA, I don't think the arguments in defense of a nonprofit status are that persuasive. There is simply no way to disguise the overt, commercialized, professionalized nature of that product. And it would call into question any claim of nonprofit status if that association tried to operate as a nonprofit. All right, so that's the first reason amateurism, camouflage, and nonprofit camouflage. A second and similar reason that the Power Five have stayed under the NCAA umbrella is that it also provides some antitrust camouflage and some built-in immunity from potential antitrust liability. And that's a complicated issue. And I'm going to talk about that when I get to talking about the, the antitrust implications of this new constitutional makeover and whether moving this overarching compensation limit from NCAA responsibility and enforcement down to the divisional level really mitigates the antitrust issues that were presented in O'Bannon and then in Austin and in this House case that's pending in California. I'm not sure that that's the case, but there's no question that the Power Five operate like a sub-cartel of the NCAA and have enormous market control and enormous power. And I think could uh, have some potential antitrust liability depending on the extent to which they cooperate either outside of the NCAA or under the NCAA umbrella. But existing under the NCAA ob umbrella obscures some of the antitrust implications. If the Power Five just go out on their own and they form an entirely new association, 
the extent to which they are dominant market players would be exposed, I think. And the fiction that they are just part of the mosaic of this broad canvas of NCAA interests up and down the divisional structure would be difficult to defend. And I think that potential antitrust liability has always existed. But again, it has been camouflaged by the Power Five's inclusion in the NCAA Big Tent. Number three, the third reason that the Power Five have stayed under the NCAA umbrella is that they get all of the benefits of the administrative services provided by the NCAA at the national office level without having to pay a penny. When I say they, the Power Five, I'm talking about Power Five football interests. And again, they are driving the train here and the basketball product is just this bargaining chip. But through that March Madness money, the NCAA pays for all association-wide administrative expenses that the Power Five football interests benefit from. So all of the insurance products that are provided come from March Madness money. The funding for all the conferencing comes from March Madness money. The committee structures, the national championships, the public relations component, all administrative aspects of the regulation of big-time college sports run through the national office, and all of those expenses are funded exclusively by basketball money, not football money. And then the last thing that they get, the free ride that big-time football has gotten that is a massive benefit to the Power Five athletics budgets is that all of these legal fees and the lobbying expenses and the legal settlements have been paid out of March Madness money. And that totals into the hundreds of millions of dollars just in the O'Bannon litigation and the Austin litigation, where there were settlement components in both of those cases, and then hundreds of millions of dollars in legal fees. But you had nearly a half a billion dollars in legal fees and settlements that were paid almost exclusively out of March Madness money. Now, in the last go-round with attorney's fees in Austin at the end of that case, I think they got, the NCAA got hit for about $45 million, and the Power Five were defendants in that case. And the Power Five each kicked in a little money to cover the $45 million. But almost all those expenses have been paid by the NCAA national office, not by the Power Five. And because you have this billion-dollar-a-year regeneration of the March Madness money, the Power Five, by and large, have gotten a, a free ride on the backs of elite Division I men's basketball players. And one of the things that really wasn't teased out in this new constitution was whether and to what extent any football money is going to be used to create these new divisional responsibilities and, and the enforcement and infractions and any new subdivision and, and all that stuff. But I don't see any discussion in this new constitution or any of the powers that would exist under this new constitution that would alter the, the status quo that the NCAA National Office and the March Madness money is picking up the tab for all these things. And remember, the Knight Commission has been involved in trying to influence this Constitution Committee and this constitutional makeover. And one of their central arguments is that within the existing NCAA structure, that football money should be used to help 
fund the national office expenses, and also be sent to downstream beneficiaries who can't pay for themselves. All, all that's done exclusively with March Madness money. And because the Board of Regents, football keeps all their revenue. And I don't see anything in this draft constitution that adopts that thinking. So I think given the power that the Power Five have and the fact that the NCAA national office interests are protected under this new constitution and they're going to get everything they need to keep the gravy train rolling and the private jets and the conferencing and all of the whining and dining and the championship party planning and the obscene executive salaries. They get to keep all that. And if the status quo is kept in place in large part, then the Power Five are happy and they're getting just another windfall benefit. This would just reaffirm the status quo. And I think that's certainly what the Power Five wants. Maybe they'll throw in some token football money for public relations purposes, but I, I don't really see them <laughs> being inclined to tap into the football revenue to send it to downstream beneficiaries. And back in 2003, when the big time football interests were getting heat from Congress over the structure of the BCS and the big time football interests keeping all of the bowl money, the CFP didn't exist then, but all this bowl money was surprised postseason payoff in big time college football. And they were saying, we're not sharing our money with anybody. This is America and we have a product that has value and we're going to go out into the market and exploit that value. And then we're going to eat what we kill. And that was a pretty bold talk, but that's how they think. That's the way that these people think about the football product. They're, they don't look at the basketball product that way. They're okay with basketball sharing its money with all these downstream beneficiaries, but that's just the nature of the power that the football interests have. And there has been zero indication from the Power Five that they intend to change that basic philosophy one bit. And then the fourth thing that the Power Five get from staying under the NCAA umbrella is an insurmountable advantage in the talent acquisition market, the recruiting market. And they achieved that coup through the autonomy legislation. And that occurred in 2013-2014. As I've mentioned in prior episodes, that was in part the product of fear about what the court was going to do in the O'Bannon case. That was in the heat of the uncertainty in O'Bannon. And the Power Five wanted to get ahead of the game a little bit. And they also saw this as an opportunity to further separate their interests from the rest of the NCAA, and in particular, from the rest of the FBS. So you had the football bowl subdivision, which had the major conferences, football conferences. You had the Power Five and the Group of Five. And through the creation of autonomy legislation and autonomy status, the Power Five created separation from the Group of Five. And that has received a lot of attention. In the Austin case, the experts for the athletes talked about that and that through the creation of autonomy, the Power Five really became a legitimate sub-cartel that had to operate as a cartel within the freedoms that it had through autonomy legislation, but subject to the overall compensation limit enforced at the national level by the NCAA and the national office. But it's an interesting designation and it's consequential. I just want to define it. So in the current 
NCAA Constitution, Article 5, Legislative Authority and Process. Autonomy, the areas of autonomy are defined as a legislative provision that provides legislative flexibility to the ACC, Big 10, Big 12, Pac-12, and SEC and their member institutions. The above-mentioned conferences are granted autonomy in these areas to permit the use of resources to advance the legitimate educational or athletics-related needs of student-athletes and for legislative changes that will otherwise enhance student-athlete well-being. The requirements for adoption, amendment, and expansion of the areas of autonomy are set forth in Constitution 5.3.2.1. And so these areas of autonomy are, one, athletics, personnel. So they were able to hire more athletics personnel than any other group of conferences. And as the definition makes clear, this classification applies only to the power five, only to the power five. Two, insurance and career transition. Three, promotional activities unrelated to athletics participation. And that ostensibly would bump up against name, image, and likeness, but I don't think anything was really done on that through autonomy legislation. Four, recruiting restrictions. There was some flexibility there on the recruiting rules. Pre-enrollment expenses and support. Financial aid, and that says legislation related to a student-athlete's individual limit on athletically-related financial aid, terms and conditions of awarding institutional financial aid, and the eligibility of former student-athletes to receive undergraduate financial aid. So it was a way that essentially lifted this overall compensation limit and gave the Power Five a little more flexibility to include, for example, the full cost of attendance scholarship and degree completion programs. Then the next category, awards, benefits, and expenses. And they were able to do a little bit more for the athletes and their families and friends, like flying them to games. Then the next category, academic support. So support services that may not have been generally available to the rest of the student body were permissible to the power five under this autonomy legislation, health and wellness, and then meals and nutrition, unlimited meals, all of these things. They didn't provide all this, but they had the authority to, and these aren't game changers. This doesn't allow the power five to just pay athletes, revenue producing athletes, whatever they want to. It just gives them the flexibility to do more than the prior overall national compensation limit, amateurism-based compensation limit that was limited to the full value of an athletic scholarship. They could do a little bit more than that. And these are the benefits that Taylor Branch described as tips in his Senate testimony in 2014. But the import of these additional benefits is that the Power Five were able to do things and afford things that the group of five couldn't or any other interest, any other football interests that wanted to try to run with the big dogs. This autonomy classification also made a mockery of the NCAA's arguments in these antitrust suits that amateurism rules were essential to preserve competitive equity so that there weren't any unfair advantages in the recruiting process. And that's never been true. It's just one of those silly arguments that the NCAA stopped making because it was so bad. But the athletes experts looked at this autonomy classification and, and one of their experts, Dan Rasher, who is probably the foremost expert on college sports economics, and he's testified for the athletes in these antitrust suits, both O'Bannon and Austin. And I'm going to talk a lot about Rasher's opinion and his expert reports when I do an episode on the antitrust implications of this new constitution and the 
devolution down of authorities to the divisions because it's important. But he basically was putting together a model that was built around conference competition, but it was within this acknowledgement that there's this sub-cartel that has to operate together under the autonomy classification because the conferences had to agree to provide any of the benefits that are on that list. But the reason that's important in terms of the Power Five staying under the NCAA umbrella is that now they will have the complete authority to decide what those benefits look like. They're not going to have to go through the association process. But whether it's called autonomy classification or however they structure Division One through this transformation committee that's been formed, I believe they're going to have the ability to preserve this competitive advantage relative to the next group of conferences, the group of five conferences. And that basically puts the group of five in a in handcuffs, really, from a competitive advantage standpoint. And even though autonomy legislation, once it's adopted by the power five, other schools and conferences can adopt it, but there's no other group that can afford to do it under the current business model that doesn't allow them to to go out and use free market principles to try to compete with the Power Five. So the Power Five, through its dominance in the NCAA governance process and its bullying and its acquisition of this built-in competitive advantage in the recruiting game, they have the ability to preserve that. And if they went out and they went on their own in a separate association, an entirely new association, the Power Five would lose this built-in control over the competitive advantage, disadvantage market in talent acquisition and recruiting. And who knows what that would look like if the Power Five would try to bring the group of five. But if the group of five were freed from this built-in suppression of its competitive uh, advantage opportunities, and they were out in the free market, they might find ways to compete with the Power Five. And the same is true with the name, image, and likeness benefits. So this has been, this whole name, image, and likeness discussion has been propagandized around all these Power Five star athletes in football, men's basketball, taking all the name, image, and likeness opportunities. But I think there's a lot of innovation going on in this unstructured market. And it's unstructured because the NCAA refused to do what it promised to do. And that was to pass legislation, voluntary legislation that would govern nil. And then at the last minute, Mark Emmert dumps his nil garbage on the steps of the institutions. But in this sort of quickly formed marketplace, there's been some innovation and the possibility for some competition between, say, the group of five and the power five. And the, the more market forces enter into the equation that the NCAA and the power five don't have control over, the more likely it is that some other market participants can compete with them on equal terms. So I think that's a powerful benefit for the power five to stay under the NCAA umbrella, particularly under this new constitution where it looks like the power five will be driving the train yet again, and they're going to be able to determine how they sit relative to the rest of Division One, and more importantly, relative to the rest of any football products that could compete with them. And then the fifth thing that the Power Five get by staying under the NCAA umbrella, particularly in the after scenario with this new constitution where they would have the exclusive authority for infractions and enforcement, is that they get the benefit of the Tarkanian decision that I've talked so much about. And that was that 1988 Supreme Court decision in which the Supreme Court in a five to four decision held that the NCAA was not 
responsible for providing federal due process requirements in the infractions and enforcement process because they are not state actors within the meaning of federal constitutional law. And if, unless you're a state actor, you don't have to provide any federal protections, any federal constitutional protections, including due process. And the NCAA has gotten an enormous benefit out of that single decision. And I think it's one of the reasons that you have people who are subject to NCAA regulations and authorities swinging back now. And you have that NCAA Accountability Act that came out in early November that just brings would bring the hammer down on that corrupt infractions and enforcement process. But the climate and culture of that of the national office is a direct product of not being held accountable for the rules that they write, the way that they apply them, the way that they enforce them, the way that they interpret them. All of that comes from this Tarkanian decision. And the Power Five are going to have to somehow recreate the infractions and enforcement process under this new constitution. And although the constitution speaks in very general terms about some things that process should be mindful of, like not punishing athletes who had absolutely nothing to do with the conduct at issue <laughs> and trying to be consistent and proportional in the way that they think about their enforcement and infractions jurisdiction and the penalty structure. Those are nice guidelines, but they aren't requirements and they're not presented as requirements. And the Power Five now are going to have the authority to put together an entirely new bureaucracy, potentially, and that remains to be seen, again, to the extent to which they're going to rely on the current model. But at the Division One level, and, uh, the infractions and enforcement process is going to run through divisional structures and divisional decision makers, and which means the Power Five. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with, but they get the benefit of not having to be accountable under federal law for federal due process requirements. And I just want to say this, that if the Power Five left the NCAA and they went out to form their own association, that protection, I don't think would follow them because in that litigation, that was a suit between the NCAA and Jerry Tarkanian, and then to a lesser extent, UNLV, who was Tarkanian's employer, a state university. But that ruling benefits the NCAA and only the, the NCAA because they were the sole enforcers of all the NCAA rules and the conferences and the divisions really didn't have that much independent authority in the high stakes cases, the big time football and men's basketball cases. So if the Power Five leave, I don't think they take that protection or that immunity from federal responsibility in their enforcement and infractions process with them. And I don't think that they would get it if there was a litigation, if some a school sued the whatever that association looked like, that Power Five association, because they violated the institution's due process rights in an in fractions and enforcement case, I don't think that new entity is going to be able to argue that they shouldn't be subject to federal due process requirements because, what, 85% of those schools are state schools and you have a much different look in terms of state action, which is that predicate requirement for federal due process requirements or any constitutional requirements. And I think you're going to have a tough time arguing if you're the power five that you are not engaged in state action because of the nature of the association. And there's a Supreme Court case from 2000 in the high school athletics regulatory setting 
that found that, yeah, that high school association was a state actor. And they looked in large part at the composition of its members because about 85% of the schools in that state association were public schools. As the U.S. Supreme Court said, yeah, this is state action. So you have an incentive at the regulatory level with the Power Five taking control of infractions and enforcement to stay under the NCAA umbrella and keep the protection of Tarkanian. And it gives them some immunity and a lot of wiggle room in their decision making. And I think that's a very powerful incentive for the Power Five to stay under the NCAA umbrella because ultimately the business model is dependent upon enforcing these compensation limits in one way or another. And to the extent that the current law, the current state of the law allows them to. And we're going to talk about that in more detail in the next couple of episodes because I'm going to take a look at what amateurism looks like on the backside of this constitutional makeover. And that's going to tie into these antitrust issues and then where I think this may be going in Congress. So we'll dive into that. But I think it's important to understand why the Power Five and the NCAA have some some aligned interests here and, and why the Power Five, despite all these threats that go back to the 1970s to take their ball and go home and just leave the NCAA altogether unless they get their way, have been in large part bluffs. They've been empty threats. And every time the NCAA has capitulated to what the Power Five wanted with, within the, the limitations of the governance structure that existed under the old constitution, and the association-wide authorities that the NCAA had, including enforcing the overarching cap on the fixed cost of labor, the amateurism-based compensation limits. And a lot of those incentives still exist. And I think that the, the Power Five's decision here to work this out under the NCAA umbrella is based on some powerful benefits that they get and have always gotten from staying under the NCAA umbrella. And in the after scenario with this new constitution, I think that those incentives still exist. And with respect to infractions and enforcement, they're even greater because of this Tarkanian decision. With that, I will close this episode out and we will have laid a pretty good foundation for talking about some of these other big picture issues and where I think this may be headed. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.